Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief, Mark Legfold. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is Senior Master Sergeant Brad Gardebrecht. Brad works for our maintenance group, the key organization that keeps our planes in tip-top shape and ready to fly. As the Quality Assurance Chief Inspector, he makes uh, not only provides the oversight for the parts and processes used to maintain the aircraft, but is also a key advisor to the people who actually do the work on the airplane. So, Brad, thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Yeah. So... It, there's a lot of stuff you need to know about the plane. And my last podcast, we talked about a really, really old plane, the Miss Mitchell, and some of the stuff that goes in flying that and maintaining it. How'd you get to the point where you're maintaining the big C-130? I started out active duty in 97, uh, basic training, tech school, hoorah, hoorah. Went to Kirtland Air Force Base, Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, and just started plugging along. I had absolutely no idea about aircraft when I started. So did you grow up fixing stuff? Not really. I don't have what you would foresee as a mechanical background. I like tinkering, but I'm I'm more of a just go-getter. So and I went kind of blind. What was the uh... So you were in Kirtland back in 1997? to 2001. All right. How was New Mexico as a, uh, a place to live and work in the Air Force? Because it was active duty Air Force. Active, so. duty, active duty Air Force on an AFMC base, which is a Air Force Material Command base. Um, so moving stuff and people around. Yep. But we were a tenant, an AFSOC unit in an AETC environment. That's a lot of alphabet. Yep. yep. So, so we were uh, on a material command base that worked with Sandia Labs. Sandia Labs are the entities that are developing the hypersonic missiles, um, a lot of laser technology. is all coming out of Sandia Labs right there at, at Kirtland. And your job was to, or the C-130's job really was to move all that stuff around or just we be were, there to support it? We were Big Crow, which is a component of the KC-135s, okay. were actually the support squadron. We piggybacked off of them a little bit. Um, our main role was to train already competent uh, pilots, flight engineers, navigators, and loadmasters from the slick version of the mm -hmm. 130 and put them in an AFSOC version, which is the Air Force Special Operations Command. Uh, the MC-130H Combat Talent II and the MC-130P Combat Shadow platforms. So it sounds like a lot of uh, moving things around, a lot of moving parts, and a lot of people in and out. Um, oh, a lot of in and out, a lot of funding issues, who's paying AETC, which is a training command, or AFSOC, and it was all uh, hinged on the missions that we were doing. Did you work yourself into a crew chief position there? I worked my way into, yes. Okay. Yeah. Primarily, you you gain that title out of tech school as a crew chief, and then you'll, you'll have an assistant crew chief, a primary um, crew chief, or what we'll call like a DCC, a dedicated crew chief. Okay. Um, active duty, we'd have flying crew chiefs. So we were... We were flying crew chiefs. When people think of the Air Force, and it's kind of funny because you say, hey, I, I'm in the Air Force, and then they'll say, what do you fly? Yeah, are you a pilot? Yeah, are you a pilot? And Because no. that's what the Air Force does, right? But really, um, the pilots just borrow that plane, right? For the for the most part, our, our operators are our number one customer. Okay. We try to give um, them the best possible product we can at all times. Right. And it's a it's a constant give and take uh, where they'll tell us a motor's today, a motor's too strong, a motor's too efficient. Mm -hmm. And that throws um, just questions. 
in their mind. And then we start looking at the data, and that's what the guys are doing currently, uh, looking at the data to see if it's a rigging issue, if it's a bleed air issue. And the crew chief's the one that just kind of manages that whole process crew and is chiefs, responsible. Crew chiefs manage yeah. a lot of the specialists, yes. So when you're the crew chief, you get to put your name on the plane, right? How many planes have had to spell your last name on the, on the <laughs> aircraft? Three. Three of them? Uh, yep. Which one's the most special to you? Uh, probably the, the Combat Shadow. All the yeah. way back in New Mexico? Yeah, six, a 64 model. Is it because it was your, your first one? It was the first one, and I just enjoyed that mission. I, uh, everybody looks back, I guess, and, I, and that's one mission that I still, like, I enjoyed looking out the paratroop windows with an Osprey on each wing, you know? Yeah. 53s. It, it was fun. Yeah. And I was young. I had no idea like how much I actually didn't know. Mm -hmm. And yet here you are with your name on an aircraft and yeah. have to know everything about it. Yeah, super responsibility. Do you know everything about the C-130 yeah, absolutely now? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Still learning every day? The, I think your older, your older crew chiefs and your older pilots I, in the, and in our career field or MDS, uh, Mission Design Series, uh, or 130s, the flight engineer, it's, it, it appears the, the older we get, the quicker we are to question and acknowledge how much we don't know. The, all the guys that I look up to are the first ones to say, I don't understand this, explain it to me. Mm -hmm. But the perception, when everybody looks at us with a, with a master's badge in our AFSC, is they just assume that we're the subject matter experts that we know everything, and, and the reality is we don't. Has it gotten easier to just say, I don't know, the more you've, you've been in the world of, of aircraft maintenance or the more, you've, the it, more experience you've been? It ebbs and flows. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, it's, it's pushed hard by all levels uh, when you're dealing with aircraft. Never be afraid to acknowledge you don't know or you don't understand something. When you get to the E5, like high-end E4, E5, So about E6 four years range, into when, the Air Force? When you're that technical expert, yeah. that's when it's hard. And that's where we see most of our mishaps is in the, the higher tenured tech sergeants and master sergeants. So when people have been doing something, okay, tech sergeant, master sergeant in the Air Force, you've probably been in the Air Force for about 10 years, maybe 10 to 15. And, yeah, you've got a lot of good experience, and you're supposed to know everything by then, right? The, it's perception. Yeah. You're perceived to know everything, so you don't get questioned as much. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to fall in between the cracks, so to say. Yep. You know? And so here, here we are sitting after you know, 20, 30 years in the Air Force, 30 years in the Air Force, I'm, st I, I'm still learning stuff every day, um, and, and you are too. It, it's, it's kind of fun, actually, to show up to work and really not know that you don't know everything about what you're supposed to know and, and have the opportunity to learn. Um, it, it's, it's part of what gets me going in the morning. How about you? I, yeah, it, when we come to work in maintenance, you have no idea what happened the previous night. Uh, we were flying, ops was flying, two aircraft, three aircraft, how did they land? What, what are you gonna need to troubleshoot? Do we even have the parts? Do we have the people? Now with the COVID, um, who popped positive? Mm -hmm. Were you near them? Are, you gonna, are we gonna lose a shop? It's, it's a, just a completely different uh, paradigm we live in right now. Changes every day. For sure. Let's talk a little bit about operating in COVID because so much of what your organization does, um, and same with commercial commercial flying and, and really a commercial organization, it relies on people that are there actually doing the job. How have you had to change your business model or your approach to getting aircraft fixed and keeping them ready and flying? We run a, uh, we try the best we can to run a two-tiered shift schedule and in MXS, uh, that side, it seems to work out 
pretty well uh, for most of our shops. The AMXS side. Aircraft the, maintenance it, and MXS fixes the stuff that fixes the plane and AMXS MXS is the MXS are primarily your back shops. Okay. Then yep. AMXS are your, your flight line oriented. Working crew. They're on all the plane structure. Yeah. And then you have MOF, which is our, our, our programs, analysis, stuff like that. The two-tiered approach helps tremendously. The big downfall is when we lose face-to-face -face, um, turnover of critical aircraft procedures or processes, it sets us up for failure really fast. Is that because we just don't have the all the brains working together and so that people can't learn from one another and... and a lot of bounce a lot of ideas off of definitely a lot of the shops are constantly bouncing different scenarios troubleshooting using fault isolation books things of that nature but it's it's really when you're in in the inspection phase or troubleshooting phase and you've done 15 20 30 steps yet you can't articulate that in word form as accurately as you can by just a five-minute conversation. Mm -hmm. So, so much is lost in translation that it slows the process for that next shift because they'll be redoing steps, reaccomplishing steps that a face-to-face -face would have nullified. It's that it's that cup of coffee conversation. The quick. Yeah, where you just you start to know the the relationships matter, and we've said that you know in our organization for well ever since I joined it, the relationships that we have with one another really, really do matter, staying connected matters, but you're right, it's been a challenge. Do you think we've become a, now that we're starting to come out of, of, of COVID type operations with the vaccination here, do you think we're gonna come out of this and be a stronger, more healthy, closer knit family because we've had to go through this? In maintenance, I don't. I think the what this is going to show is um, some of the limitations we have. Also, it's going to show some of the advantages that certain areas within maintenance have mm -hmm. to be able to continue teleworking. And it's it'll only help when we start deploying because it makes that communication piece that we weren't the best at. We'll be more proficient at yeah. because we're so used to Zoom meetings or WebEx meetings, which whichever way you want to go, um, it's natural to us, and we're it was unnatural before. So looking at uh, looking at how we do operations, I change is kind of inevitable in all this, and it's it's been a struggle no matter what your job is and. Yeah, getting used to the Zoom meetings and the WebEx. I mean, can you imagine back in 97 when you're sitting in New Mexico, if you had to do this, what it would be like when you're on that, just at the beginning part of your learning curve, learning the plane, how difficult that would be for our, our new folks coming in? Oh, it sets them back years. Yeah. It, it'll, be a, it'll be a tough struggle, but I think the way our newer people coming into the Air, Air Guard and into the Air Force, the way they learn, I think they're going to catch up a whole lot faster than we are thinking. One thing that'll help are extended TDYs, the, the Yuma. Our short trips. Short trips, yep. where we can get for a sustained amount of period of time, one week, two weeks straight with individuals on that airframe, yeah. they, they learn exponentially fast. Is that where you've done most of your learning? On the road. On the road? Yep. Yep. TDYs, deployments. You learn a lot about the plane, how things operate, but you also learn a whole lot about the people. And we've had some weird characters out here. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've been at this base since 1995. It's been a long time. And there have been some odd ducks rolling through here. Those short trips... Who's the weirdest person you ever traveled with? Oh. Weirdest. I We'll go with we'll go with Keegan. From, from the 133rd. Yep, still in. 
Yep, Keegan's still in. Some people have done some oddball stuff, and I being through Yuma, they've got the, a hotel there yep. with a two-story balcony around it mm -hmm. and a pool inside there. And I was at that hotel responsible uh, for a bunch of people at that hotel and watched people dive off that second-story balcony. No one does that anymore, by the way. I watched uh, one of our one of our AFSC A type personality shops, I guess. Yeah. Uh, give up another one of our our members a massage while he was playing a guitar and singing. A group of eight people. It was it was quite unique. Interesting. It's it pretty funny. <laughs> And nothing, you're like, it's, well, that's normal. Uh-huh. <laughs> Some of the stuff that passes as normal, I, I guess uh, <laughs> it, it gets us closer together as a, as a family, which is, uh, it's a whole lot of fun. You've had the opportunity to do some traveling as well. Um, so as, as chief inspector now, you've done some traveling with that. Yep. Um, accident investigations? Yep, I've done... One class B okay. uh, safety investigation. What's a class board. B? So a, a class B is a, a mishap that falls under the parameters of a death or a total destruction okay. of, an, of an aircraft. Pretty big. In this case, we had uh, just just under one million in damage. It's an aircraft, um, a foreign military aircraft, hit. A T block, and a, and shot blocks of concrete through a Texas Air National Guard 130 while it was doing an engine running onload or in between an onload and offload. Um, took out uh, there was 50 to 60 holes in that aircraft with the crew on board. Any anybody get hurt? Nobody got one? hurt. Um, there was a thank God a flight surgeon on board yeah uh, was able to to get out assess um the the really shining grace in the whole thing was one of the army individuals out of the 30 that were getting ready to load onto the 130 had uh some of his paperwork was messed up so it delayed them by 10 minutes if all their paperwork would have been Perfect timing wise, you would have had 30 packs um, entering that aircraft with bowling ball sized concrete flying at them. Mm. So there would have been, it would have been bad. Amazing how that so worked. So we just, like, we missed one. It was, it was close. And were you the lead investigator on that? or Nope. Okay. Nope. Uh, Team of them. Yep. There was three of us. Yeah. When you're looking at doing an investigation like that, you're not only looking for cause, um, but you're also kind of looking forward in time saying, hey, how can we prevent stuff like this from happening again? Which do you focus on most? What happened it, or what, what can we do to prevent stuff? Initially, yeah. what happened? Because that can drive you to preventing the next mishap. Yeah. And it's, it's imperative um, that we get honesty that's why you have different ways to investigate or interrogate, ask people questions. Uh, the safety side is truly there just to find out what happened to prevent it in the future. Um, safety's not there to place blame, tell you you did something wrong. We are not disciplinary. We mm -hmm. truly just want to find the root cause. So when you... Think of your job as an inspector. Do you consider yourself a teacher, a cop, or a gardener? Whew. Really, it's off of our maintenance group commander's philosophy. Currently, um, Colonel Berta, he wants us more of the white hat. What does that so, mean? White cop, hat? gardener, or teacher? Uh, teacher and gardener. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's the philosophy currently in... Maintenance is to try to build up competence in our young mechanics in more of a teaching learning role. Okay. 
growing the next generation. Definitely. Yeah. You think that's the most effective way of doing things? Depends on what your goals are. If you want something done strictly by the book, you give us a black hat initiative yeah. where there's, there's no wiggle room. But I think that also sets back an organization and only works in short spurts. When you were active duty, did you see more teachers or did you see more cops? When I was in, it was more teachers. Currently, okay. it's more cops. Okay. And then you were in the reserve for a little while too, right? Yep. Yep. How about there? Different mentality or the same? Reserves, I, I glean that as active duty light. Okay. Reserves will implement a lot of active duty policies three to five years prior to the guard. Brad, you're the first person that I've talked to that's been in all three of our uh, active duty. Yeah, the <laughs> trifecta of excellence of of trying to figure out where the best place to serve is. And here we are in the guard. And, you know, I sure do like it, but I was never in the reserve. What's the, what's the good, the bad, and the ugly about each of the three branches that you've been in? The good, the bad, and... Yeah. So, the honestly, the good about active duty is the pace. You... You just get thrown into so many austere conditions so fast, so young. It's a it's a sink or swim. So double edged sword, good and bad. Yeah. You're either like I swam, I didn't sink, so it was good for me. However, it's not good for a lot. The ugly is the backstabbing in active duty, because everything is so political it, and com competitive, competitive with the person next to you. Yeah. Um the reserves, the good is the um, stripes are separate in the reserves. So you have traditional stripes and full-time stripes, and they don't compete. Okay, so a little so, little easier to make rank. As a traditional. Yep, as somebody have, that's drilling one week in a month. You actually have a true path. Sure. The ugly in the reserves is you don't have the congressional support like the guard does. Meaning that... Um, the guard is tied to the state that they are Definitely. in. And so you've got a, a, a governor and senators and congressmen and women that want the guard to succeed in their state. Right? That have personal invested yep. um, responsibilities with us. Yeah. We work together. That's why we have a tag, you know. That's what's nice about the guard. Um, and we really need to stay guard. Every, like family. You'll hear me say that a lot. The guard is like a military family. Uh, we're we're losing that. We need to get back to it, and I think we will. I I'd like to say that every family we have a dysfunctional family reunion one week in a month, and two weeks out of the year, right? And every family's got their crazy uncle Lou. Are we losing the crazy uncle Lou's, or are we just losing the sense of family? We we both we're losing a little bit of the sense of the family. Just because of the the speed at which we're deploying, we don't have some of that downtime to be able to foster those interpersonal relationships. Yeah. We're more st structured, which the guard isn't. You know, yeah, we have to follow the rules and the policies, but the best thing about the guard is the guard card. Mm -hmm. The guard card. Yeah, the guard card is like card the guard members carry. It's like a waiver because a guard waivers everything or can waiver everything. I'm watching you reach into your wallet and just wondering, okay, the official guard waiver. The bearer of this card is exempt from traditional U.S. military customs and courtesies. Seriously, you carry this around with you? Yeah, a lot of guys do. Never seen it before in my entire career. Yeah, you'll see it. It's a guard card. Your full-time job is my weekend hobby. Love it. Maybe someday I'll have a copy of that one. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. We we. Uh, I remember when I was active duty and looking at the guard, and I, I've asked some of the people that have been around here for quite a while, we used to look at the guard coming in on their two-week training to an active duty base. Used like, to laugh at them. Yeah, the, the hair was way too long. Yep. The uniforms looked absolutely terrible. And the work ethic just was 
it was different. You couldn't understand how, how it could be so efficient. That's the thing. The reason they're so efficient is they know what they need to do and they get it done. Yeah. That's it. They do their job. It's, it's what we love to do. If we can get rid of all the active duty minutia, it, we win. Yeah. And that's what the guard card is. We need to pull the guard card a little bit more, in my opinion. Well, maybe, maybe if somebody out in D.C. is listening to our little podcast here and saying, hey, what can we do to be more like the guard on the active side? Yeah, things would get done a little bit differently. There's reasons for everything, and, and I get that. Uh, but, boy, I tell you what, when we go on a longer trip or even on our short ones where we work side-by-side side with the active duty, it doesn't matter what your job is. Um, you will constantly see these people that deploy together as a family, work as a family, and be more efficient and be more effective and be more close um, at the end of the day. Yeah. Nobody does it better than the guard does, here's, in my opinion. Here's guard. Eric Moan um, and I went to a utilization training workshop. We were tech sergeants, I believe, at the time, lowest ranking. And a, a master sergeant came up to us and said, hey, you guys must be the guard guys. It's like, yeah. Like, why? Said, because you're smiling. Huh. We were the only two joking around, having fun. Everybody else takes takes themselves a little bit too seriously, I think, sometimes. Sometimes. We take our jobs and we take making sure these planes are flying well very, very seriously, but uh, the sense of family with each other is it's there's a closeness there. And you know, to, to go to work and say, I work with people that I really, really love and care for, it it's unique to us. I think it's very unique to us. It's something that uh, a lot of organizations I think could learn, but it comes from some hard trials that we go through and you're just keeping a good sense of humor. Like I said, having our dysfunctional family reunions once a weekend and loving the people that come in and work, it's it's part of what makes us a family out here. It helps tremendously that we're all professionals. I mean, that's a profession of arms. Yeah. We're all professionals and we're all leaders. It, it doesn't matter <clears throat> what rank you are, we're professionals. Yeah. That's what makes it easy for us. Yeah. You don't you don't have to stereotype or look at anybody. You just know professional. Just ask them a question, you'll get a professional answer. Yeah. We don't have to worry about a lot of that mundane details that the civilian sector has to worry about. Yep. There there is a good part of that. Um we got a lot of training that we have to do as an, as an Air Force, and I asked you before we started the podcast if I, I can ask you some hard questions. One of the things that we do deal with as a family um, is we deal with loss. We deal with um, difficulties in families. Um, I don't know how many people I've, I've had hard talks with about what's going on in their family in, in my career. Um, you've had some personal experience with that. Uh, in the loss of your cousin back in 2017 yep, to, to, yep. to suicide to and suicide, yep. your sister I'm sorry your cousin your your cousin's sister um, older sister um, put a very touching story um, she's a member of the Wisconsin Air National Guard and put a story in there about how you reached out to her after her sister committed suicide and um, I mean, you had just lost your cousin, and she had just lost her sister, and you called her and said some things that were so empowering in that moment. And it, I mean, for her to get on the computer and actually write about that out in a public forum, it spoke to uh, your level of care and compassion and empathy in that moment. How'd you find the courage in those words in that tough moment? I talked to one of the chaplains on base, um, Puyo, Puyo, Colonel Puyo, and he his advice to me was was point blank like suicide is a choice. It's a choice that was made. So, I 
I thought about that quite hard, honestly. And um, truth be told, I've I've had three suicides in my life. Pretty pretty close. One in Milwaukee, Matt Davis, his brother committed suicide in front of him. He was a crew chief, so we worked through that as a as a crew chief family, which made us really tight. Rick Schmazel from the 934th. Uh, we were in the van pool together. Um, and my last memory of him as a trained suicide prevention CBT accomplishment E, um, he was smiling, laughing with me. Uh, that night, he took his own life. So then talking to the chaplain, it's like, it's a choice. And that's, that's really what I called both of my cousins, Andrea and her older sister, Wendy. Um, and all I said was, it wasn't your fault. It, it wasn't. Because everybody, they were placing blame on themselves. I was placing blame on myself. What did I miss? I'm supposed to know these warning signs. I'm supposed to be trained in this. The reality is it's a choice. It's a horrible choice. Um, but yeah, it's not your fault. I said it multiple times. We're, we're fortunate where we get some of that training and we get to learn, but really at the end of the day, um, having that ability to say those words in that powerful moment, um, that takes a high degree of courage. Um, when someone when someone commits suicide, the people that are left are suffering. You agree? Horribly. Yeah. And yet the people that are left are the ones that lean on each other and and um, struggle through it. And it's it's not easy. Um, it's a it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the fortunate thing that we have in the guard is we have so many resources um, available to us uh, when we're struggling with personal things in our lives, where where those are considerations, or when people around us are struggling because they've lost a family member. And you reached out to your chaplain, and that. That's uh, sometimes we forget that the chaplain is there until we really, really need him, and then you know suddenly they come right to the forefront of our mind, and and we're so happy that they're there. Um, getting your family through that is uh, it changes the dynamic of the family. Are you and is your is your cousin? Are are you guys stronger now? We, I would say, like, personally, we probably are, um, but we, do, we still don't see each other very often, yeah. not as much as, as we should. Um, I don't, I definitely don't worry about Andrea or Wendy. They're, they're both very, very strong women and, and confident and successful, so, um, but you could you could have said the same thing about their younger sister Megan. Mm -hmm. um, it'd be nice to be closer to them, but it just just doesn't work out. Yeah, it's it's tough when there's distance there, right? Mm -hmm. For sure, for sure. Um, but you guys both, uh, your family. Um, one of the things I learned because I do a little research on our on our on the folks that are going to join me. You are in a house of animal lovers. Is that true? My my wife is a animal lover. Yes. How many adopted pets have you had? Oh my gosh, over the years, uh, over thirty uh, rescue animals. My my wife would, and I, because I live there, <laughs> take, <laughs> take in rescue dogs and, and foster them, right. uh, get them, get them trained up and then adopt them out to loving families. Yeah. That, that's got to keep you pretty busy. 
how do you, it, it's how do you keep a good work-life balance? I love coming to work. Yeah. There's no dogs. There's, <laughs> no, it, it's stressful. Um, we, yeah, we have right now one foster cat, which will probably stay with us forever. Good cat, huh? It's a good cat. I'm not a, I'm not a cat person. My son is now a cat person, which I've been trying to uh, change that thought process, but I'm losing. Yeah. Well, you know, eventually every good, <laughs> no, I'm not going to make a cat joke. I, I, no. I keep telling myself I got to be equal opportunity and love cats and dogs, but, um, Hey, I've been talking with uh, Senior Master Sergeant Brad Gardebrecht. He works for our maintenance group. He is also our Wings Outstanding Airman of the Year in the Senior NCO uh, category. And when we come back from break, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So stay tuned. Thank you, Chief. I'm Master Sergeant Gaddis, the recruiting flight chief here at the 133rd Airlift Wing. And like most units, COVID-19 has impacted the recruiting office normal operation procedures. COVID has prevented my recruiting staff's ability to get out in front of our community. We are staying afloat, however, I wanted to take the time to ask the audience for some assistance on spreading the good word of the great things we do here at the 133rd. I would also like to highlight a few careers that have multiple vacancies. And these careers are weather apprenticed, aircraft maintenance, cable antenna systems, personnel, services, security forces, air medical service, and many more. Please send prospective applicants our way. We can be reached at 612-713-2096. That's 612-713-2096. Thanks, Chief. I've been interviewing uh, Senior Master Sergeant Brad Gardebrecht, our outstanding Senior NCO of the Year for the 133rd Airlift Wing. We've been talking about his time and experience in maintenance group. And while Sergeant Gaddis was giving us a rundown on some of the uh, opportunities out here in recruiting, he and I have been sitting here just kind of BSing a little bit and uh, found out that he and I both have the same opinion that Milwaukee, Wisconsin is the romance capital of the upper Midwest, right? Yeah, that's true. Yep, because you, you proposed to your wife there, Yep. and I proposed to my wife there. So, great place to go sample a few beers and, and uh, you know, see, seal the deal with, uh, with our brides-to-be at the time. Um, but anyway... So Outstanding Airman of the Year, what does it take to become an, the Outstanding Senior NCO of the Year for our wing? Working above your grade. What does that mean? Continuously um, working in a superintendent role, uh, being placed in duties above your rank and position, and succeeding in those positions. So what does it take to be successful? And what is it? Okay, let's, let's throw the term out. What does it mean to be really, really great? Um, in the role where you're at, how do you define greatness? As a, I need to stay as objective as I can in my role. Yeah. As soon as I allow myself subjectivity, I will set myself up to lose friends. The more objective and detailed I can be, professional I can be, the easier my job is subjectivity and um, making things personal are extremely detrimental mm -hmm. to my job. But I'd consider you to be a personable person. I'm extremely personable. You get it's along. very hard for me in, in some instances to, to toe the government line. Yeah. I asked you earlier, do you job. consider yourself more of a teacher, cop, or gardener? And you were, yeah, this job's... Of course, it depends on the culture that the boss is saying, but consider yourself more of a teacher in that role, right? Definitely. Yeah. So you have those good relationships with people, but you also know the book answer and the regulation. And um, we were talking about just how important safety is in your role. And when you can focus clearly on safety, it's easier to get the job done or the mission done, I guess, is what you were, you were saying. 
Um, what else, when it comes to you know being really, really great uh, at what you do, aside from being objective and being personable, how else would you define greatness? Ha! Huh. The easy answer is being from Wisconsin. Um, <laughs> I believe we're born being great. Um, that's a that's honestly just a tough question. Being like being great without being cocky or arrogant, it's a it's it's not easy. And I don't I don't think I'm great. Honestly, we, I'm I'm average. Everybody hears me say that all the time. I'm average. Okay. I'm an average guy. Well, let's let's fine. Let's go with your your other assessment of what it takes to be great, right? Um, Frank Caliendo, Chris Farley, and Jackie Mason. They were all great, right? Mm -hmm. You know why they were great? Because they're cool. Chris Farley was from Wisconsin. Well, they are all three from Wisconsin. So <laughs> they're, they're the four of you have that in common, there right? You so you're going on a fishing trip with those three. All great, funny people, right? Who'd bring the cheapest beer out of the four of you? Me. What would you bring? Oh, probably Bush Lattes. Bush Light? Yep. Being a good Wisconsin guy, and you'd bring bush light. For the most part. Okay. It's easy. It's, it's easy on the palate. It's because it's like drinking water. Oh, sure. <laughs> all right. So what you're, I'm, I'm picturing you guys, all four of you guys out on a fishing boat someplace, probably in northern Wisconsin, right? Um, what, would, what story would you tell them to get them to laugh? Ooh, I like that caliber. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I tell you the truth. I I don't go into situations pre-planned. I'm a off-the-cuff individual, so right. I'll gain most of my humor, laughs, um, piggybacking off of what's already been said, or just saying what other people are thinking. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm I'm reactionary. In I, that sense, I think in that boat there'd be a lot of a good reaction, especially when Farley starts getting up and doing his brand of comedy. Yeah, because that boat would tip over in a heartbeat as soon as he starts start, adjusting start his start pants dancing and like a Chippendale. Oh dancer. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Being a motivational speaker. I that's exactly what I was thinking about. Just <laughs> adjusting the pants and the suspenders and. Pretty soon you're all going to be in a van down by the river. Well, sure. Okay. All right, so short answer. Here's the rules. I'm going to ask you a question, and you can only give like a one-word answer on these things. Okay? Piece of cake. Easy. First one's easy, I'm sure. Vikings or Packers? Packers. Scotch, bourbon, or Paps Blue Ribbon? Bourbon. What's your guilty pleasure TV show? Right now, I probably Gold Rush. Okay, best rock band ever. Steel Panther. <laughs> Movie that made you cry. I don't cry. I don't know. Okay, hunting or fishing. Hunting. Drinking fountain or bubbler. <laughs> I'm a bubbler guy. Yeah, I figured you were. Growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, of yeah. course you would be, right? Well, north of Green Bay, yeah. All right. They're the same thing for people that were wondering that. So, um, <laughs> scotch or bourbon? You said bourbon. What's the difference? Scotch is made in Scotland. All right. Bourbon is predominantly made in the Bible Belt, the Tennessee area. Kentucky. Kentucky, area. Tennessee, yep. What uh, what makes a good bourbon? Ah, smooth, yeah. smoothness. I'm a Basil Hayden's guy. Um, Woodford Reserve is a is a good a good choice, but but mainly if I'm gonna I'm gonna go, it'll be a Basil Hayden's. All right. When uh, 
when I started learning about people from Wisconsin, which was primarily from my wife, uh, who grew up just south of Green Bay in a little town called Chilton, um, I learned about the state drink of Wisconsin. A brandy old-fashioned an, sweet? Yeah, an old, old-fashioned yeah. sweet. But um, you can make that with bourbon, right, instead of yep. brandy? Yep. A lot of people make it with Maker's Mark. Or... Yeah. What do you prefer? Brandy. Okay. I go up. A Corbell, brandy old-fashioned sweet with cherries, and we don't muddle like in Minnesota. Yeah. That's not an old-fashioned. We're so improper over here on this side of the, on the proper side of the river. And um, we use honey and not simple sugar oh. or maple syrup. All right. Now i got something to try. Enough. I've never tried it with the maple syrup, it's, and I'm much more of a Manhattan guy than I am an old-fashioned, but I'll give that a go sometime. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah, with a little burnt orange around the around the rim, I think is you probably can fancy it up. Yeah, why not fancy it up? <laughs> you could fancy it up oh, a little sure. bit. Uh, another famous Wisconsinite, Billy Mitchell, and so my last podcast was right, literally beneath the wing of of Miss Mitchell, the B twenty five down at the commemorative Air Force. What do you think Billy Mitchell would say? General Mitchell would say about our Air Force today. He would say you need to pull the guard card more often. Yeah, hundred percent. Yep. Billy Mitchell was, the 440th was, we were stationed at Mitchell Field. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, no-nonsense type of guys. Get stuff done. Just get it done. Yeah. Know your personal limitations, get it done. Yeah. My limitations are going to be different than your limitations. I'm willing to accept more risk. Get it done. Mike it. Um, So this... This is the first podcast I've done this new year, so congratulations. Here Thanks. we are in 2021. Um, what's something everybody can learn from 2020 that we shouldn't forget by 2022? Uh, don't vote by mail. Yeah. <laughs> uh, resiliency. Yeah. Try to follow the rules. As, as much as possible it's like the mask the mask isn't there to protect you it's to protect other people so be cognizant of other people you don't know if they've got underlying conditions heck they may not know yeah so just play it safe you think we're going to be a more empathetic caring society in when it comes to the medical fields potentially as long as this stuff um, starts relaxing pretty quick. Otherwise, the resentment may you know, slow that yeah. substantially. I, I, I kind of hope that that's something we, we keep into 2022, where we, uh, we look at, at another human being and we say, what can I do to help you be more safe or care about you? Or, um, you know, wearing a mask, your, your example is, is kind of spot on there, where we think about other people and what, what we can do to be helpful or what we can do to care about them. I hope we don't forget that by 2022. Yeah. And if you're sick, stay home. Yeah. I don't want the flu. <laughs> like, just stay home. Yep. I think so. So did you set any New Year's resolutions or goals? Uh, my wife and I are doing The Biggest Loser. We'll weigh in March 5th. So we usually do that. And it usually it, it it's sustainable. Yeah. We usually use lose about ten pounds. She maintains I'll gain back some of it. <laughs> it's those old fashions with the yeah. brandy yeah. and the honey and the maple syrup. Yeah. Right? My sweet tooth. <laughs> oh well. Um what uh you know, you've got a busy year ahead of you. Um hopefully. Uh, one of the cool things about being an outstanding airman is you get to represent our base at some different functions and you get recognized. And back when we were having big crowds at sporting events, we've, we've allowed our outstanding airmen to go and take part in some of those things. Um, so a lot of really, really fun stuff uh, that you get to do just as a part of that. What's the most fun experience going, you know, from your, from, starting out active duty but 
all the way to now, what, what's your most fun experience? Because you've had a ton of trips, a lot of different deployments. What's the most fun that you've had? I'll say flying out of Tacoma, Washington uh, with the, the SEER instructors while they're doing jumps. Um, SEER instructors are the... Search, yeah, search and evasion okay. instructors. People that, that teach us crew, how to survive. Yep. Yeah. Air crew have, have to go through. So they're also jump qualified. Um, I was the crew chief on the aircraft that went out there to support that mission. So we were dropping them. And they had these little um, Honda CR like 75s or 100s because the handlebars fit through our paratroop doors. Little motorcycles. Little motorcycles. And we would drop them. They would have runway lights, run up and down the runway, dropping the lights, allowing the aircraft to see and land. And I got a hold of one of them, and I was doing a burnout, and it didn't quite have enough power uh, but thankfully, the Army had a fire truck there, so they sprayed a little water by my rear tire so I could break it loose. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of an inner. <laughs> like you had the active duty, the reserves, and the Army all working together to burn a tire off of a little motorcycle. That is what we call a joint operation right yeah, there. It's support. That'll that'll make us more effective everywhere we go in the whole wide world. <laughs> it's fun too. Well, let's let's keep hoping. Let's hope we keep on having fun as the as the year goes along and as uh, as you keep on going on in your career. Hey, Brad, it's been a pleasure to sit and chat with you, um, and I appreciate you joining me on Beneath the Wing. I hope this has been fun for you. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Good, interesting. That's, That's what we say in Minnesota when it's yeah. really bad. Yeah. <laughs> first podcast oh there, there you go um well anyway thanks for joining me on beneath the wing next time when we get together uh we're going to be celebrating a hundred years as the first federally recognized air national guard unit and i'll have a special guest on to help with with that so uh, make sure you tune in next time on beneath the wing thanks